the future fascinates. It doesn't matter if you're a glass half full or a glass half empty person. We have never been more consumed with trying to know what the future holds. We are no longer sated by merely predicting Oscar winners or professional sport outcomes. From climate change to food trends, financial forecasting to election results, it seems as if we need to know it all before it happens. Welcome to another episode of the Folio podcast by Al Sarkal. I'm Benita Palzmaj. Since late July, Al Sarkal Avenue has been hosting its summer program curated by Kevin Jones under the theme Foretold Now, which concludes on the 14th of September. The program comprises talks, reading groups, and performances that explore the insatiable human appetite for the future and people's attempts to predict it. Kevin is an arts writer who also runs Juniper Now a consultancy that looks to merge creative thinking from the art world with strategic storytelling from the branding world. He describes himself as someone who is obsessed with studying the human desire to speculate, to predict, to maybe control what comes next. So we started really simple with things like trends, fashion trends, food trends. Every year you'll have a report on, you know, what the next year holds across every industry and sector. And that seems kind of harmless, and we've integrated that into our life. And then uh, above that, you've got this kind of speculation in terms of financial forecasting, retail forecasting, also the algorithms that kind of point you towards your next purchase, seemingly helpfully, but also kind of, you know, nefariously in a way. And the dangers of financial speculation, which we've sort of, you know, had our fingers burnt with um, not so long ago, and all the way into things like prophecy, people who prophesize things like um, the death of the white male or things that are, are, are much more um, fundamental and almost, um, again, prophetic in, in that way. And the end of the story arc is looking at apocalypse and what the end times actually, how we predict that and how we visualize it almost. So that's kind of like the crescendo of prediction is, um, is apocalypse and the end of the world. So it's quite, it's kind of a dark program, <laughs> admittedly, but, um, but I think there are moments of, uh, of enlightenment. Before the deep dive on studying the obsession, it was important to touch upon the fundamentals of future forecasting. In everyday speak, speculation and prediction are sometimes used interchangeably, although they couldn't be more different, as many of you probably already know. The art of speculating is primarily indulging in conjecture, whilst the science of predicting relies on foretelling with precision of calculation, knowledge and informed inferences from facts and experience. Speculation comes with a great degree of, of, of anxiety, right? I mean, I think we're worried in a speculative space all the time. Uh, you lose a bit of, of moorings and, and, and directions. Whereas, and, and, and again, prediction is still quite grounded in, 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 in the space itself, in the present itself. It's always hinged to today. Prediction, you always have a foot in the present to, 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 to look at the future. And one of the kind of um, examples that I use about this, this prediction and the anxiety that comes from it as well is a face app, which is, you know, like so you peer at yourself. So I did a face app of myself as, you know, like a 75-year-old or something. And, and, and again, it's this idea of, of, of you're grounded, you're looking at a, at a present 
configuration, a physical, you know, facial configuration that's then projected through the science of, you know, predictive algorithms and male baldness patterns and wrinkling hierarchies and stuff into this. You peer at this future, which is conjectural, but as probably as accurate as it can get. And, and, and then you come back to the present with the stress of, you know, Botox, you know, clinics make a fortune out of, out of you know, out of the anxiety that, that, that comes from something like FaceApp. Ultimately, I would argue that, that all of this is really overhyped, that the idea of actually kind of unpacking the future or trying to predict in, in and of itself is, is quite, you know, is quite futile because the future is probably not worth actually predicting. And so it could go, go very wrong. Prediction is only as good as the tools that you use, right? So when you go back in time with FaceApp, because you can become younger with FaceApp as well, that's when it starts to fall apart, right? So that's when you actually have empirical evidence to say, but I did not look like that as a 15-year-old, you know? So so that's when when this idea, so that, that's the kind of anti-prediction, but, but it also kind of... Uh, looks at how the kind of the real prediction is, as you said, kind of um, dodgy some, sometimes. Ancient astronomy and astrology are early evidence of our fascination with prediction. In the absence of modern data analytics, how did ancient civilizations foretell outcomes? There's this um, ancient kind of Roman, although I imagine they took it from the Etruscans or, or, or the Greeks even, it's this kind of staff that has a a square at the end of it, which is called the templum, which they would take out and look. Um, you, it would kind of freeze frame birds flying across the sky. And you would have an augur who was kind of priest who would then interpret what the positions of those birds meant within that frame, how, how high they were flying and what clusters they were flying. That would predict if a battle would be successful or if a, an election would be some way or if a temple could be built in, in, in a different place. But, but this idea of, of, of that tool that we use, like today it's FaceApp, then it was, it was this. But again, prediction is only as, you know, as, as, as trustworthy perhaps as, as the tools that, that we use. And, and maybe the tools are the things that are wrong. So humans have been obsessed with predicting outcomes for centuries. The concept of the Foretold Now programme and its events seeks to explore and understand why the obsession exists to begin with. Is it about anticipation, preparation, control, or is it about something else altogether? I think it's a control over your destiny. I mean, ultimately, that's, that's the thing. When, when, when you are shown something in the future that, that will happen, let's say with it all certitude is, or, or likelihood will happen, then you reorient your behavior in the present, right? So this idea that you've now controlled a destiny which was somehow out of your scope is a sort of taste of, of power and, 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 again, an alignment of your own fate, Ultimately, I think that's at the basis of it. I mean, I keep thinking, well, now that we're having this conversation, I keep thinking of that. There's a, a moment in Game of Thrones where Cersei goes to see a witch. I don't know if there are Game of Thrones fans amongst the, the, the listeners, but when she goes to see a witch who then predicts that, you know, she will have a certain number of kids, and but she'll, she'll have three kids, but her husband will have, um, you know, 25 because the king was, you know, a, a great womanizer. Um, and that they would all die or something like that. And so she takes actions to, to, to you know, can prevent that and, and, and divert it. But ultimately, you know, that prediction happened to be one of the ones that was right. Um, so, so, so again, I mean, it's this idea of control over, over a fate that somehow still, still escapes us. And we haven't really done in, in, of this whole program, and we haven't done enough yet 
to um, really start unpacking it, but, uh, but I think we will. I think this idea of, of apocalypse, so we're doing a, a, a debate at one point, which, which, which we're calling the invisible end. And it looks at the apocalypse as um, something that is almost so insidious as you may not even know that, that, that it's gone. But in control, again, I mean, I think that's the, 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 the lowest common denominator of the, of the whole thing is control. How, how we kid ourselves or kind of coerce ourselves into believing that we, we, we control things. Since it started on the 27th of July, the Foretold Now programme has featured debate, music and dialogue every Saturday. The experience has been programmed with the future at the core, with weekly reading groups and events that are designed to help us understand and situate us in the present in order to set up the foundations to predict better. Consider the dialogue, a new architectural utopia that was held on the 3rd of August by a group of students from the American University of Sharjah's College of Architecture, Art and Design. The students submitted a proposal to an open call by French architect Dominique Perrault. He, he was commissioned to kind of curate a show around the 500th anniversary of a chateau in the Loire Valley, which is uh, Chambord. And Chambord has um, a little bit of a myth of da Vinci having designed the component of it, which is this kind of double helix spiral staircase. But Chambord, above anything else, was con conceived in this kind of worldview of utopia. And da Vinci himself kind of was always after... Um, the ideal city, like putting together a city where mathematical rigor sort of intersects with this mindfulness about economic activities and human and animal activities in it. So Chambord is kind of born in this in this in this world of of trying to ideal uh, imagine the ideal city, and the, the the brief to all these architecture schools. So there's something like forty five architecture schools from around the world, very prestigious ones, MIT and Princeton and and, uh, and SAIC from the Art Institute of Chicago. The brief was to reimagine this utopian view through the prism of what's going on today. Um, so everything that that implies with, you know, our ecological kind of mayhem and, uh, and financial um, mayhem as well, perhaps. And the, the students from Sharjah came back, who, who were shortlisted among the 18 um, finalist schools, came back with a proposal which is called Ecotopos, which essentially imagines Chambord flooded. Um, and again, so this is not without precedent because the rivers around Chambord always flood. I mean, they're, they're, they're through centuries. The French have been kind of riddled with, with, with flooding uh, waters, uh, inundating chateaus and, and the like. But the, the emblem of, of uh, Chambord is its spires. It's a, it's a kind of constellation of the forest of different types of spires and, and uh, towers that come out of it. It's kind of bristling with these really intricate Renaissance design um, spires. And what they've done is they've submerged the chateau. So the chateau is kind of almost three quarters under underwater. And these spires, or the inspiration um, of the spires, manifested itself in these different towers that they built on the site. And each tower is very f has a very specific function. So it's kind of a science fiction world when you look at it. And yet it's grounded in something very that, that's on everyone's minds today. And it also has to do with something that's 500 years old. So, so this kind of um, mashup of past, present, and future is, is, is really kind of, that's the heart of, I think, what we were trying to look at as well, that, that, that people walk away with a sense of not just the sort of um, 
you know, their, their presentation was stunning just from a rendering point of view. Uh, and, and there's a short video in it. So it's not just to walk away with this fascination of the world of science fiction, but to also understand that it's coming from a space of, of kind of deep concern and, and, and worry today. Intended to remain accessible to anyone with a curiosity for new discovery, Foretold Now's broader program is to maintain universal appeal and avoid the esoteric label. There will be some things that I think will, will instantly appeal to uh, a, a crowd of what we'll call the art world. But I, I would also say within that, we're trying to make the talks as accessible and, and, and broadly interesting as possible so that we, we appeal to this demographic that we're calling the culturally curious. And again, I think this was initially Antonia Carver who, who spoke about this idea of the curious who are out there. Um, but, but the people who are culturally curious who, 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 actively seek stimulation, especially during the summer months if they're in Dubai where there's not really a lot to do. Um, this is a, a space where you can come for that that kind of intellectual. I don't want I, I don't mean intellectual in its inaccessible way. I just mean intellectual as so like kind of cerebral stimulation uh, rather than, you know, aquaventure or something. And and I think that it there's a there is that demographic which which varies in terms of age, in terms of occupation, in terms of ethnicity that 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 is out there in Dubai. And and I did something recently with Al called um, Slow Art Tours, where we tried to instead of doing on the opening night of, of the art galleries, um, trying to, to to go from every single gallery and look at every single thing, get a sense of everything. We 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 slowed it down and looked at three galleries only and three work like a work in each gallery under like it was kind of linked curatorially there was at least an idea that that unified the three and i think that's that's the public that i i, I would expect to see in some of these talks and debates it's the same with the reading groups. I mean, I find people, you know, spectacularly well-read here. You come across people who, who have a lot of, of divergent interests and who are broadly read. On the 24th of August, The Invisible End, artists and the apocalypse will explore the creative community's fascination with the end times. Where we once explored potential post-apocalyptic future realms and literature, visual arts and film, it now seems to be the prerogative of scientists and data analysts. Kevin will moderate what promises to be a compelling discussion on alternative perspectives. The debate kicks off at 4pm at Concrete in Al-Sarkal Avenue. The following weekend of the 30th and 31st of August will feature a series of workshops led by Rohit Goel, Professor of Critical Analysis, Art and Design with the Centre of Arts and Architecture at the Ballad Institute in Mumbai. We spoke to Rohit, who's a philosopher, historian and astute observer of contemporary art, to get a preview of his lecture and workshop. In large part, I hope that participants of this workshop uh, walk away with uh, at least, uh, if not a final, final answer on the question, what is the contemporary of contemporary art, um, at least with a desire to constantly clear the fog when they use or hear that term, and will definitely be appealing to genres such as modern art and traditional art in order to get at what uh, what the contemporary of contemporary art uh, means. Some would say that recently contemporary philosophy and elements of history have become quite fashionable within the contemporary art world. And this is a wonderful thing as a philosopher, as a historian, um, it's tremendously exciting. It's given me an opportunity to explore that world more. Um, yet I think that a lot of fog has been created around notions of, for instance, contemporary time, modern time, traditional time. And so the goal 
of the workshop is really to read quite carefully, um, to discuss collaboratively, um, and for me to lecture a bit, not too much, but uh, a bit um, in a structural way on uh, what precisely um, is contemporaneity, um, how has it appeared in a common sensible world and uh, in, in everyday language, uh, and uh, what might it be, what might contemporaneity uh, be if we thought about it a bit differently. And we'll do, um, we'll make these explorations in conversation with, again, close short readings of, of uh, philosophers and historians, as well as some contemporary art work. Rohit's work has led him through the Middle East, where he did his archival research in Damascus and Beirut, which drew him to continental psychoanalysis. And yet his debut at Fort Hall now will mark his first visit to Dubai. All of this time spent in the, in the Middle East, I've actually never made it to Dubai. So this will very much be um, my first my first trip to Dubai um, and uh, my first trip to the Gulf for an extended period of time. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it, not just because a lot of you know friends and, and family members have participated quite actively in the in the contemporary art scene that's emerging in extraordinarily interesting ways. Uh, in places like in the Emirates, but also because it's a fascinating site of contemporary capitalism. Particularly exciting for me was to do this program, uh, When is Contemporary, the workshop, as well as the public lecture, Contemporary Art, a Topology of Fear, under the rubric uh, or umbrella that Kevin Jones has come up with um, quite brilliantly. It's very sound scholarship based on a broad selection of texts. But this would be a space where people can actually sort of peel away the layers of what time, like, again, this idea of time and contemporaneity. What does that mean today, this moment that we're in? What, is it, what does it mean to feel, um, to feel contemporary as opposed to being modern, let's say? As we continue to consider our ability to predict whether we have the right tools and whether we can really factor all the parameters we need to make the right predictions, we realize how our forecasting abilities can be turned over by the smallest unexpected shift. Climate change, for example, requires us to almost throw our current algorithms out altogether, not to mention the unpredictability of influential personalities who can make a decision that could completely throw any prediction off its axis. I also think there's a certain degree of, of a cultivation of unpredictability, right, in, within the within the leader himself or herself. I mean, I think that there's a there's a knowing um, platform of unpredictability. I think Nixon at one point was also also played on this, a, a, a kind of scaring off people as being someone who would make a very a very rash decision. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a great degree of uh, uh, there's, there's a great reason to believe in, in in the kind of creation of the personality. But I also think that the unpredictability can also be used as a kind of political tool. Um, I think by by saying that prediction is sort of futile and that, and that you can't really um, rely on it. It almost says that our sense of control is futile as well. Like if we can't, you know, and, and I, I'm putting those two things in parallel. Like maybe we really don't control as much as we, as we think we do. And and I'm I'm fascinated by things like scenario planning and crisis communications and um, you know disaster planning and stuff like that because I I find that as you say those things like in a breath could crumble. You know the the most you know exquisitely planned scenarios for anything from corporate governance to <laughs> you know to 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 disaster relief they could like vanish. And again, th th I think that the precariousness of all of that is what's what's really kind of brewing underneath a lot of the thinking in here. 
and if predicting is as futile as it sounds, would it be fair to speculate that the future of forecasting itself might be short-lived, or will we continue to try? It's funny, you know, I wonder how much it's not... Um, yeah, I wonder if one time we won't get tired of it. We won't feel that it's, 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 you know, it's not worth it anymore to do this, that all the algorithms that point us in, in this direction or that direction are, are, are perhaps not even, they're really not helping. <laughs> Portal Now also includes a screening of Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky on the 7th of September at Cinema Akion, a vibrant public performance by celebrated flautist Herder Rehman from Lahore will kick off at 4pm at the Fridge on the same day. Herder is a student of the renowned Indian flautist Pandit Hari Prasad Chaurasia. The programme wraps up on the 14th of September with a Pechakocha night at Inked. For a complete listing of events, do visit alsokalavenue.ae. That's A-L-S-E-R-K-A-L-A-V-E-N-U-E dot A-E. Or follow Alsokal Avenue on Facebook. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Folio Podcast with me, Vinita Pardwaj. We were produced by Chirag Desai. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and through streaming apps like Angami and Spotify. This episode of the Folio Podcast was brought to you by Al-Sarkal. <laughs>